Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, welcome to the New Books Network. I am your host, Stephen Sakevich. My next guest is Lowell Gustafson, and we will be discussing the book Science, Religion, and Deep Time that he co-edited with Barry, with Barry Rodriguez and David Blanks. It was published by Rudledge in 2022. Lowell Gustafson is currently a member of the International Big History Association, or IBHA board. He is also the treasurer for the IBHA and an associate editor of the Journal of Big History and the editor of Origins, the Bulletin of the International Big History Association. He earned his PhD in government and foreign affairs from the University of Virginia in 1984 and has been on the political science faculty of Villanova University since 1986. Lowell Gustafson, uh, welcome to the New Books Network. Thank you, Stephen. Thank you for this opportunity to talk with you about um, these, these topics. Yeah, yeah, no problem. And uh, usually we like to begin by asking our guests, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and what's a little bit of the backstory behind this book. And even in, I believe it was the introduction, uh, a little bit of the backstory was explained. Yeah, um, I, I teach, polit- I'm a professor of political science at Villanova University, which is just outside of Philadelphia, uh, Pennsylvania in the U.S. Uh, and I've been interested in how the natural sciences um, help us talk about politics and the, the development of all of that. So, um, And that led me into an interest in big history and how politics fits in with, with all of that. Now, you know, somebody said that there's two topics that we all know you should not talk about in polite company, and that's politics and religion. So if you've got somebody from a department of political science who wants to talk about religion, probably the best thing to do is to usher that fellow to the door and wish him a very good day. Uh, but the, you, you, you're gracious enough to go ahead and, 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 and have a, 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 a discussion about these topics, which just shows how patient and gracious you, you are. But in any case, I, I find both of these, all of these topics to be you know, so central and so fascinating to 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 me, to uh, to so many. And people have disagreed a lot of, about how to um, conduct these conversations, and that's been part of our group's um, you know the history on on the topic. Um, so the, the the backstory of this is that I was interested in in in, in these topics, and a lot of other people were too, um, in a, in the organization that studies big history. There were others who thought, for lots of good reasons, actually, that you know it's best not to get involved uh, in in these sorts of things. And as far as being ushered to the door, uh, there were uh, comments made from time to time about that. If I was interested, maybe another organization would be the best place for me to to, to be. Now, but um, that that hasn't been the uh, predominant view. So here we are. Fascinating story. Now, uh, this book is written, and you mentioned big history, uh, and some people still don't understand what that means. Can you kind of summarize? And it's a growing field, but can you kind of quickly summarize, like, what do we mean by uh, big history? Yeah, well, first of all, I think all of us are historians. We all like to think about how we got to be here now, how we got to be the way that we are. We have our personal histories. We've got family histories. We've got national histories. We've got, you know, histories of cultures and civilizations. So so I think everybody's a a historian. The question is, where do we want to begin the story of the past? Um, And we've had this discussion in our own country, in the United States? Does it begin in 1776? Does it begin in 1619? When you begin the story makes a difference in how you tell uh, the story. But in any case, big history simply talks about that we that history is the story of the entire known past, 
It's not just the written record of the human past, and that it's the natural sciences who have really blown up our older sense about what history is, how long the past goes back. And so the, the astronomers and the physicists talk about a big bang, so big history begins with the big bang. And then the natural sciences go through the different historical periods of time that led to us. And so about 100 million years after the Big Bang, uh, we have stars and galaxies. Uh, and then maybe uh, 4.5, 6 billion years ago, we have the accretion of the Earth uh, in our solar system. And then about 3.8 billion years ago, we have evidence for the first um, origins of life uh, on Earth. And then the, the, the evolutionary biologists talk about the different periods of time in which life forms have increasingly become uh, more complex, especially starting in the Cambrian period some 500 million years ago, and how that leads eventually to mammals uh, and to primates, and then to our common ancestor with chimpanzees about 7 million years ago, and then a, a series of forms of hominids that finally leads to us, Homo sapiens, maybe around 300,000 years ago. Um, and then eventually we get to recorded history where we have um, rock art and we have uh, uh, burials and we have other um, evidence for the cultural development of, of humans who live in increasingly complex forms of, of villages and agricultural settlements uh, and then in cities and nations and empires. And here we are now in a global digital age uh, and wondering where what these trajectories mean for our future what could we expect uh, and so history becomes future history where where are we headed what is the future about in the short term the next century or millennium in the long term the next 14 billion years what could we expect um, in, in this so anyway big history is just the study of big time um, and how we see ourselves within that and what difference it makes to us very fascinating. And uh, so then within this context of big history, why have a, a book on religion within this context of uh, big history? Uh, sure. What is what is the purpose? Yeah, I, I think in as, as people have studied this this gradual development, especially when we get to humans, there is. A lot of evidence for for religious ideas and practices among humans you know did it exist before humans that's a separate question but um, with burials for example once you have the idea of ritually very carefully burying people and then including burial goods with them it seems as though people had the idea that not only did the the people have souls that lived in the afterlife, but that all of these items that were buried with them also had spirits that they would need to bring with them in the afterlife. They seem very early on, before there's any written record of the human past, to have these notions that we sometimes associate uh, with, with religions. And, and then once we have start to have the written record of the human past, we have all kinds of scriptures, you know, whether it's in the Judeo-Christian or in the Hindu or in, uh, in, 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 in Islamic or Jewish uh, uh, past, lots of writings of, about religion and then lots of religious architecture. People were building all kinds of different buildings associated with this. So, so there's a lot of religion in human history. Um, and so you, you really can't avoid the topic when you're when you're looking especially at, at human history. Um, and so it, the, the one of the contentious questions, of course, is have we moved past uh, the religious stage of human history into a more secular and uh, strictly scientific period. Um, so that's an interesting. But in any case, when you when you study humans, there's a lot of religion in the past, and there's a lot of religions now. I mean, people go to churches and synagogues and cathedrals and temples and mosques and and, and all kinds of and they engage in all kinds of religious activity. So it's a historical period and it's a contemporary period. 
The question for big history, of course, is how far can you push the story back? And um, and that's what lead, led to our book. Yeah, and uh, very interesting. And yeah, with the study of religion uh, in the contemporary world, I know there's like what's called post-secular studies that, you know, religion, you know, secularism isn't going away, but neither is religion. So they have to kind of get along as best they can. But uh, and you kind of touched on this topic uh, in your introductory uh, remarks about how they kind of said, well, if you're going to do religion, maybe you might do uh, go into a different field or a different organization. How has the discourse on religion evolved within the field of big history over the past decade or so? Because big history has really grown since uh, around 2012, when there was the original uh, big history uh, conference that really brought the field together. So how has it? Yeah, it's been a it's been a fascinating and contentious topic uh, within the, the organization with people who are interested in big history. It's been a contentious topic for a long time. Um, August Comte, the famous uh, French uh, kind of founder of the social sciences, uh, talked about how humanity had gone through three periods: the the religious period, uh, age of faith. Uh, knowledge is from revelation. Then he said we went through a philosophical period. Of course, in, in France, you had the great French philosophers uh, who talked about the great principles of liberty and fraternity and equality. Um, but then he says at his period, we had entered the scientific period and left the religious and philosophical periods largely behind uh, because those did not produce verifiable, believable, credible knowledge. And it was associated with epistemology. How do we know anything? Uh, and neither science nor just pure thinking, philosophy, led us to knowledge that was useful, that was credible for, for us. And so we needed to move on to, to a scientific phase, which could be with observable, measurable evidence. That's, that's what was needed. And anything shy of that didn't, didn't give us good knowledge. And worse than that, the only way that people could uh, affirm what religion and even philosophy told us was just to become passionately, fanatically assertive about these things. And so religion became not just useless, but dangerous. And so we had inquisitions and crusades and wars of religion. And now we have religiously inspired terrorism. So religion is either worthless or dangerous. And it's just best just to leave it behind us. And then we've had people with personal experiences. You know, there's so many types of religious experiences and institutions, and some people have had very bad personal experiences with them and have their own personal reasons for not wanting to address these issues, along with these larger intellectual currents that have been highly critical uh, of, of religion and, and hoping that science rather than religious fanaticism, can produce useful knowledge, helpful knowledge, can solve some problems, can help solve diseases, um, and can lead us to not uh, settle our agreements through the use of religiously motivated force, but through rational and, uh, and, and scientific investigation. So, so we've had all of those reasons play into our organization saying, history, it is now it has been redefined by the natural sciences. Big history has been made possible because of the astronomers and the physicists and the biologists and the chemists and the geologists, um, and they have used the scientific method, which now we need to employ in the study of human history, and that's what will give us useful knowledge that can solve our problems uh, and can do so much more peacefully than than religions have done in the past and so the, you know these are not unimportant reasons for not talking uh, and, and investigating religion that if you're if, if you want to talk about religion and big history this is letting the camel's nose under the tent and it's just gonna you know enter and upset the entire uh, 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 uh enterprise which is just 
you know, a bad idea to begin with. So for there were good reasons why there were people who said this is this is not a good suggestion, which is a suggestion I made back in our 2014 conference, saying that we we ought to get together those people who are interested in this topic within big history and have a conversation out of which we can have an edited book. Um, and others said, no, that's not the direction that, the, that we ought to take. So um, as, as you see, a, a number of us did go through uh, at this, and it's still a, a, a matter uh, of, of controversy. There's a number of people in, in uh, the field of big history who at best find this whole approach to be squishy um, and, and maybe worse than that, uh, and just isn't what we should be doing. So yeah, it's a it's it's a contentious um, project. One observation I've made is because uh, originally in the beginning, uh, David Christian, who's usually the founder of Big History, he spoke of Big History as like a modern creation myth. And I've noticed over the past decade that term hasn't been really used. And I kind of noticed, well, okay, it's a modern creation myth, but then how does that relate to the old creation myths? And that never was really kind of addressed and it was kind of like okay well what are you trying to do here yeah he he did use those terms and in fact i think that um that that he saw this as a as, as a myth that would be good for all of us we could all see ourselves in in this myth because it's a myth based on science and based on credible knowledge um but still it served the same purpose that myths had in the past he was much criticized for that saying that ah you're trying to make big history into a new big religion, which is, for all of these reasons we just mentioned, not the right way to go. Um, and so I think sometimes he's changed um, his views on that. He, for example, his uh, the name of his uh, a, a recent book is Origin Story. It, it's not origin myth. Um, he's, he wants to tell a story. It's a great narrative, um, but it's a myth. It has too much of a religious connotation uh, to it for, from that point of view. So, so, so there's a, there's a lot of people who have, who have wanted to move away from the notion of that big history serves a religious purpose or is uh, a, a myth that it's 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 a it's a way to integrate the sciences, which include the social sciences. Sciences, which includes the way to study humanity. Um, and that's really what big history should, should be about. And we just need to leave some of these older terms, which have so much baggage associated with them. If you talk about myth, then you're, 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 you're talking about, again, unverifiable you know, claims to, to knowledge which just aren't, aren't true. Um, and so it's just best to leave some things behind us as, as, as we move forward. Um, so, or, or to talk not about religion, because that term carries so much baggage with us. It's really best just to leave the term behind. David Christian will talk about the, the search for meaning. What what do these stories mean to us as people? Um, but uh, let's talk about meaning. Let's not even use the, the word religion because this, uh, it, it just gets us off into too many irrelevant and contentious and counterproductive uh, uh, disputes. Yeah, and we've kind of been touching on this topic. How is the issue of like science versus religion how is that issue kind of addressed within the field of big history? And I know like even in the history of science, that's been, you know, a major area of study over the past generation or so. Well, it's, it's a huge uh, issue because, of course, in, in, on, on the one hand, we've got the tradition which says the, the sciences give us verifiable, quantifiable, measurable, observable evidence that produces knowledge about facts, about reality, or at least approaches our better understanding of reality. Whereas religion is based on claims uh, and on beliefs uh, and what is, you know, what is 
can cannot be uh, observed and, and, and measured. Uh, and so the fact-belief notion, the science-religion issue, puts them in sort of opposite corners of a boxing match. And you have, you have the idea of, of, of just that, of science versus uh, religion. Um, the, t- the title of our book is, is Science, Religion, and Deep Time. In other words, it uses and instead of versus. Um, what we're looking for, uh, or, or really what motivated my um, you know, suggestion early on to, to do this, is first of all, I think one of the great achievements in human civilization has been the scientific development of a cosmology, you know, a century or more, not too much more than that ago, we could not have told this story. It's only because of the really tremendous advantages, advances in the sciences that big history is possible. And that the the brilliance that has gone into this detective story is, uh, is, is I, first of all, I think it's one of the great detective stories of, of human history, the, the piecing together of all of this uh, uh, information to, in, into a coherent narrative. So that I, you know, I, I, I'm fascinated by, I embrace, I, you know, I'm, I, I think everybody ought to be familiar with this. Um, but rather than leaving the past behind, I'm impressed by the gradual development over time of a lot of brilliant people who have asked similar questions uh, to uh, the, that we have been asking. Uh, and that these questions have been asked and discussed for thousands of years, if not maybe tens of thousands, maybe even hundreds of thousands uh, of, of years. And that, that brilliance is not limited to our own time. Uh, that people in the past uh, have uh, have you know suggested some really insightful uh, answers to these types of questions. We might frame them differently. We might we might want to translate some of the language that they used uh, into language that that works better for us. And we might want to rework it. Um, significantly, um, but still learn from from people who lived in the past that they have said, they have taught us a lot of things which continue to influence us profoundly. Um, Whether we are religious or not, we carry with us the stories and the traditions that are very old. And And the goal, I think, for for us, the assumption is that the there is a universe of knowledge, a universities claim to unite knowledge, and that the, the goal in our, in our contemporary universities should be to try to integrate knowledge into a coherent universal framework. And so we, we don't find different branches of knowledge in, in, in conflict with each other, but we look for where they can enrich uh, each other and so for me, the issue is where can you have science and religion? How can you talk about religion in ways that doesn't contradict science, that, that can learn from the sciences? And maybe we, maybe some of the ways that religion has been expressed in the past have gotten a little tired uh, and we need to reconsider what they are without being hostile to them uh, with uh, while still learning from them and in not just repackaging them uh, but to maybe change the notions uh, uh, that we have about religion and maybe even about science one of my friends emphasizes that we shouldn't talk about science uh, and religion we should talk about nature and um, and, and, and 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 religion uh, because ev- you know, who doesn't love nature? Um, and that uh, this would be a possibility. But in any case, to talk about science and religion is, is a way to try to find a, uh, a, a, a contemporary rationale for universities, uh, for um, uh, the integration and synthesis of, of knowledge. So kind of like the uh, grand unified theory, as it's sometimes uh, called. Is that yes. Kind of- 
And well, and and it's just as difficult. The physicists, as I understand, haven't quite put together uh, quantum mechanics and general relativity, the theories of the very large and the very small. Uh, you know, the, the the string theorists are you know making some headway on that, but uh, there's still work to be done there. And, uh, and 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 in many ways, I think that there are values in both science and religion that might instruct us here, which is I. Ironically, the, the the idea of humility. The, the the a lot of religions emphasize that in the face of whatever the transcendent is, it's so great that our only proper response is you know recognize our our humble nature. But the scientists really have said the same thing. Uh, they have said no matter what question we answer. Every answer seems to raise new questions. Uh, and uh, Marcelo Bleiser uh, has a marvelous expression. He's a Brazilian physicist. Uh, he has a marvelous expression on the island of knowledge. He says, we don't have a theory of everything. What we have is a really pro uh, profound found history of improving our knowledge. We have, we start out knowing a little bit in a very large unknown universe of, of, of possible knowledge. Lots of times we don't even know what we don't know. Sometimes we know what we don't know yet, but we know a little bit and we have added to our knowledge. Um, and so that's a, it's an island of knowledge. The irony about the island of knowledge is that every time you add to it, it borders on more of the unknown. Uh, and he says, so far, that's where we are. Uh, and he says, maybe that's where we'll always be. We've been working for 2,500 years or so on science, at least for the last number of centuries. And there's a lot of un big unanswered questions yet. And his argument is, take a deep breath. Uh, and, you know, keep working as hard as everyone's been working to add to the island of knowledge, but accept the humility that there's so much we don't know, uh, which, uh, and, and there's a certain humility which comes out of the sciences. There's a, a relationship there between religious truth and the experience of the scientists uh, who are the first to uh, argue. I, I, I know my, my, my friend Eric Chasen, who, who has a brilliant uh, a book uh, on the epic of evolution says he dislikes the idea of truth because the idea of truth seems to suggest that there's some complete body of knowledge which is total and unchanging and can be that is known that somebody knows what this is he says i he, he much prefers the notion of a of an increasingly better approximation of understanding reality um, that that you're humble enough to know that nobody's got the complete uh, truth. So, and, and, and he's an astronomer. He comes out of the natural sciences. That's for me, that's an expression of, of humility, which is a traditional religious virtue. Um, and th th that may be the best approach to both science and religion, just to not for either one to claim that they're going to have a theory of knowledge, a theory of everything, or a claim to total, universal, known, unchanging truth, uh, that neither one should quite make those uh, to totalistic claims. Yeah, what you just said very much reminded me of Socrates' famous statement, the only thing I know is that I know nothing. <laughs> yeah, well, and, and, and maybe we can be proud enough to think we know something. But just, just recall, I mean, and the sciences are the first to say, why did the Big Bang? We really, as far as I know, we don't have a theory of the Big Bang yet. Um, maybe we can talk about quantum foam and so on, but, you know, we, we have a pretty good, a decent theory of what happened immediately or almost immediately after the Big Bang. But why did the Big Bang take place when it did? Have we had other big banks. There's a lot of big questions. How did life develop? Uh, I think the, the evolutionary biologists are the first to say, we really don't know exactly how did we go from uh, chemistry to biology. Um, 
they're the first to say we've got a lot of unanswered questions there. Um, the, the biggest, where did the universe come from? Where did life come from? Much, you know, much less any number of other questions. We don't know um, really yet. Uh, we're, we're working on it and a lot of brilliant people are working on it, but um, there's, we probably will never know everything. So we know something and that's not bad. Now, uh, how can materialism and religion relate to one another from a big history perspective? I know one of the chapters kind of addresses this uh, issue. Yeah, it's a real, I mean, clearly it's, a, it's, it's been an, an important issue. I mean, science uh, is, is about real stuff. It's about observable stuff. And, uh, and a lot of religious people, they're talking about spirits and, you know, who's seen spirits and they, you know, so you got materialism versus spiritualism. And how in the world are you going to integrate uh, those things? Um, now, I, 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 my sense is that the, the scientists have, have, have really changed their notion of matter over time. You start with, in the, uh, with De, uh, Democritus, uh, the ancient Greek philosopher, who was a materialist. I mean, he's the guy who came up with the notion of atom. Uh, he, he said, look, we, we've got all of this wild diversity around us, all kinds of different things. Where's the underlying unity to all of this different stuff that, that we've got? And he says, well, let's just imagine we start cutting different things up into smaller and smaller and smaller pieces until finally you get to that piece which is uncuttable, which I gather in ancient Greek is Adam. It's the what is uncuttable, the building block of everything else. And so the question is that we've got a, a handful of of, of, of identifiable building blocks, and then we put them together in different ways to make all of the wildly diverse items that we can see around us. Now, that's an idea that's been around us for a long time, that, that the ultimate reality is a building block, a little tiny hard particle. And that's what an atom meant for him. Of course, you know, one of the great uh, you know developments in, in modern science is, is that uh, the atom uh, is made up of subatomic particles, and this and this uh, protons and the protons and the neutrons are made up of further smaller particles, up and down quarks, which don't look very much like blocks anymore. They, whatever they are, they seem pretty fuzzy, um, and and then. They are in relationship, the, the, the gluons mediate the strong force between them. In any case, it's forces and fields that um, the physicists talk so much uh, about now, which is not little building blocks. Um, it, it, we, we have the relationships among things which are really real. It, it, you know, the, the physicists tell us there's an enormous, relatively an enormous amount of space between the quarks, an enormous amount of space between protons and electrons within the atoms relative to each other. And, and so for that point of view, if you have anything made out of matter, there's no reason why it shouldn't just, why you and I shouldn't walk through a wall. You and I and the wall are mostly space. It's space between us. So, you know, the likelihood of anything running into each other is so low. So what stops us? from going walking through a wall. It's not the little things that somehow are, make them up. It's the relationships between them. It's the electromagnetic force. It's the strong force. It's the Higgs field. It's the it's magnetic field. So there's no magnetic particle. There's a magnetic field. So fields and forces, ways to define relationships, which are not blocks. They're not the building blocks. That's what makes up the reality. This is why people were so excited about the uh, identifying what seems to be the Higgs boson uh, at CERN uh, about a decade ago, and because there was this search for, for what, you know, how do we explain mass? How do we explain stuff and matter? Well, it, it's not from a building block. It's from a field, uh, and that field excites particles. Uh, but it, it, so, so matter becomes much more 
ethereal. Of course, the string theorists get it pushes even beyond uh, quarks, and, and they say ultimately it's vibrations. There are not strings per se. There's vi- there's different vibrations that then make up matter. Matter and the universe is the music of the spheres. Really, it's vibrations uh, that that we all are, uh, or. Uh, the most famous uh, equation of all time is Einstein's E equals mc squared. Energy is the same as matter times the speed of life squared, which is a remarkable. But but then there's that equivalence between energy and and matter. So matter becomes a much more less building block like thing than it has uh, before, which is not to say it's a spirit. That's for sure. Uh, and maybe one of the ways that we need to look at the history of religion is to reconsider what is opposite from matter, spiritualism, or the idea of spirits. Um, this has a. This is maybe some uh, something that some religions uh, really uh, uh, lead to. It. It's, it's typical in, in Christianity for sure, but in uh, for the ancient Hebrews, they didn't talk about God as a spirit. They talked about God as a breath, and so God breathes life into people, or God blows the waters aside so that people can get across the Red Sea. So, so it's not spirit. It's it's, it's breath. Uh, it, it's life in that way. So maybe the religious language needs to not create a binary between matter and spirit. One of the one of the typical things in a lot of uh, you know Judeo-Christian thought is that the spirit of God made nature. So God is beyond nature, but God created the nature. And the scientists say, where's the evidence for this? And there's there's done. Uh, So maybe we need to think about these questions differently. And that's, I think, what uh, motivates our our book is, is how can we rethink some of these terms that we use, the ways that we think about religion, maybe the ways that we think about nature um, could could be thought of a a little bit differently in in ways that in in this attempt to unify science and religion and use and instead of versus between the two of them. Now, one important idea in the history of religion is the so-called axial age, which kind of gave rise to a lot of the major world religions, Buddhism, uh, Judaism, Christianity, and I believe Islam is included. How does that, how is that addressed within a big history uh, perspective? Well, yeah, I mean, that's Carl Jasper's famous observation that we went through an axial age and a number of different cultures simultaneous, more, le- I mean, it, it, and, and relatively uh, similar periods of time, um, and not necessarily in communication with each other. So he was impressed by these, these great figures um, in, in, in Buddhism and in, in, in Judaism and the Levant and in Persia and, uh, and the different areas of the world. Um, and these are, in one sense, they're axles because it's, it, it's great civilizations and cultures still seem to turn around them in, in many regards. Uh, and, and that there's a period of time in which uh, humans really develop fundamentally new ways of, of integrating knowledge into a universal story. Um, and that in, in the Judeo-Christian tradition, we have this, but other traditions uh, have that uh, as well. And some people have said that we are living through kind of a second axial age at this point for two reasons. One is this, this exact issue that you've brought up about science and religion. One of the great questions now is, is there a meaningful dialogue between science and religion that can lead to um, an integration, a universalizing unity of these of these two, you know, great fields? Um, and then, in addition to that, you do have established great religions, uh, world religions, very much in conversation with each other now. So, what? 
what does a Christian, Jewish, Hindu, Buddhist, Zoroastrianism, you know, Islam dialogue mean? What, do, what does the interreligious dialogue, the interfaith dialogue mean? What does the religious science dialogue mean? And that together, we are living in an axial age. I mean, it's really quite remarkable, uh, the illustration of this that's just taken place this week with a the, the grandson of Indian immigrants who's a practicing Hindu becoming the prime minister of England. Uh, that's a that just personifies the 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 ways in in which uh, the land of the Church of England uh, and the tradition that they used to be the colonizer of uh, have uh, are are interacting meaningfully at this point. But there's a there's a million examples of the interrelationship, the dialogue between religions and religion and science, and that it's it's this. This very complex, very often messy effort to find unity uh, among them and forging increased, increasingly complex relationships is for me what what this is about. That globalization has sometimes been thought of as, as primarily an economic process, increased trade, increased movements of capital and so on. But it's often been observed that along with the movement of money and and things, you have the movement of goods and the and the increased interaction between ideas and cultures as as a result of of the process of globalization. What what we're what we're seeing now, perhaps, and what we've seen maybe over the last few centuries, is a sometimes violent and sometimes not violent in uh, interrelationship among cultures, among religions, uh, among fields uh, of, of knowledge. Uh, and that this is what the story of big history is about, is increasingly complex relationships among units uh, over time. Uh, and that it's been messy in the past. It's been sort of violent in the past, uh, very often. But that's what we're that's what we're trying to live in now. So the axial age, I think, is is a fascinating one because the, the idea is here was a, a period of time in which human cultures developed in in new and more complex ways that have had lasting significance. Perhaps we are in a second axial age now, which is trying to stumble forward uh, in, in a second attempt uh, to, uh, to form our own axial age um, at, at, at our point in history. Very fascinating. And what kind of new paradigms about religion that can emerge out of this new axial age, especially within the field of big history, in mm -hmm. your view? Yeah, well, I think I, for me, that's, that is the essence of, 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 of this undertaking is what can we say about what the teachings of religion are that I do find to be wise and, and worthy of consideration still? And what are the teachings of science? So, so how can we how can we rethink nature? How can we rethink uh, religion? <clears throat> the the story of, of, of big history is is this as I, as I mentioned here is the story of increasing complexity that seems to be the, the Fred Spear has been you know very clear on this idea that you start out with relatively simple relationships so you have up and down quarks in a relationship and protons and neutrons mediated by uh, the gluons mediating the strong force that's what you've got um, and and that's what exists for some three hundred thousand years it's not until after that, that then you add the electromagnetic force so that protons and electrons can form hydrogen and helium atoms. So the atom itself is a more complex set of relationships. Then you have stars and supernova, the explosions of some stars, and the collisions of neutron stars together, forming the rest of the elements in the universe, which are spread out into space. They sometimes combine into a variety of chemicals. So you have, for example, in space, a lot of hydrogen and oxygen atoms connecting with covalent bonds to form chemicals. 
relationship between different elements. So chemicals are a more complex entity than you had before. Then again, in this history of the universe, for all kinds of reasons, you have the formation of terrestrial planets. You have the development of increasingly complex relationships between chemicals in amino acids and proteins and lipids and RNA. And then the the tremendously complex relationship between all of those within the first prokaryote cell. And then you have the, the evolution of cells so that you have multicellular animals, different cells cooperating among themselves until finally you get to us. You and I are each, each have something like 28 trillion cells which are have incredibly complex sets of relationships within each other so that you and I can sit here and have this conversation. Then you have all kinds of ecological history of the relationships between individual animals. In, in humans, uh, increasingly complex relationships among individuals in kinship groups and in villages and cities and now in, in the globe. So the story is about increasingly complex relationship in, in big history. What do I draw from my own religious tradition? Now, this is where, uh, you know, I, I'm the, the purpose of the book is to ask people who come out of Islamic and Hindu and Shinto and other religious traditions what big history means for them. Um, and, and that's one of the conversations. So what it means for me coming out of my Judeo-Christian uh, background is What's the teaching of, uh, of, of, of my religious tradition? Is it about specific stories uh, and, and events? Is it, is it about these things? Um, for me, you know, as, as I read it, the, 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 the Tanakh or the Hebrew Bible or what the Christians call the Old Testament is, is about the story of a people and how a, a people is going to get along. They have to, they have to abide by certain rules that govern their relationships. Uh, They have relationships among different family groups or tribes or kinship groups and and, and how they're going to get along or not get along. They divide and and so on. Um, In in Christianity, the stories, there's the sense that people had is a great split in relationship. Why do we have the broken relationships and how do we renew it? What I see in, in the tradition that I come from is a real concern with relationship. Uh, and how to maintain it, how to restore it, how to build on it. Um, that, to me, is, is what the story is about. And I see that in the etymology of the word religion. <clears throat> there's, there's, uh, it, it may or may not come from certain words uh, in, in Latin. Uh, Cicero insisted it came from a Latin word that meant to study uh, uh, sacred texts. Uh, others said that it came out of the word which means to bind together, to tie together, religare. Um, and that word is related to the Indo-European word. Some of the uh, uh, early British colonists recognized as, as uh, a religion relationship between Latin and Sanskrit, that they each had cognates coming from Indo-Europe, European language, which was spoken in the Russian steppes. And their their word for league or lig, L-E-I-G, the same word we get obligation or league uh, or ligament uh, or religion from, referred to what ties or binds together which is different from what restrains. We're we're not talking about tying things so that they are are restrained. Think instead of a ligament, which ties bones together so that you have increased functionality. One bone by itself doesn't facilitate walking. Different bones tied together it enables uh, us to, to, to move. So in that sense, what we're talking about, what ties us together 
binds us together so that we can improve our functionality, so that we can do things we wouldn't have been able to do before. And in that sense, religion provides, uh, the history of religion provides symbolic ways for us to think we have something in common with each other. We feel bound to each other if we share religious beliefs. People form religious communities and they're very committed to their religious view, whatever that is. And so it's it's it, these these views and practices bind people together. Now, the irony is that they also very often separate us and make us hostile towards each other. So they, they can divide groups and make us, well, hostile towards each other. But within the group, ideally, they're supposed to tie us together. Now, religions also have the tradition of splitting up into all kinds of sects and orders and uh, and denominations. And so you have the opposite trend of division and fragmentation uh, and uh, rather than developing relationship. But at least in part of it is about this in the religious tradition of finding those symbols that bind us together. For me, that's That's the great challenge that we're facing now and what makes this of contemporary importance to me uh, in in the study of politics is that uh, in politics, we've often struggled with with political fragmentation uh, and hostility and wars and and revolutions and, and so on. But we've also succeeded at times in forming federations and confederations and various forms of, of union uh, and what we're what the, the, I think the great question that we're facing now in, in world politics is which direction are we going to go in uh, are we going to have hostile spheres of influence where we are where it's China versus us versus Russia versus who knows uh, who who else and that we'll have a future of wars uh, and perhaps you know at worst political and social collapse, uh, will our country in the United States split between the red and the blues and uh, and uh, we will come apart at the seams that, that this could well happen? Or can we find ways to, to form, to find the symbols uh, and the practices and the ideas that can uh, unite us, that can create a more complex set of relationships? Can I actually feel as though uh, I'm I'm meaningfully connected to people in China, or am I just worried about getting into a war with them over Taiwan? Um, that's, I think, an important question. Now, this is what I think David Christian was getting at when he started talking about that this is a is a creation myth, uh, because he saw as I understand his thinking on that, the political importance of a common creation myth. If we all see that we have a common origin, and that's part of the story of big history, everything in the universe, whether you're from the Milky Way or from the Andromeda Galaxy or from the farthest reaches of what the Webb Telescope is telling us these days, you come from the same origin point of the Big Bang. So no matter where you are in this universe, you come from the same place. So there's a common origin. Or the the origin story of life. Uh, there's, there's talk about the last universal common ancestor. The, the, the claim is that all life forms, what plants, animals, everything, has uh, has a common origin. Uh, and that uh, you know we we share you know the vast majority of our DNA with chimpanzees. We apparently we share fifty percent of our DNA with bananas. I mean, we, the, all of life forms have a common origin, or the the origin story in East Africa of hominids. The the, the physical anthropologists have been telling us that it seems as though um, Homo sapiens evolved in Africa. We are all African. Some of us left 
Africa 70, 80,000 years ago, uh, and uh, others left Africa forcibly just uh, much more recently than that. But we're all African. So one claim is that big history gives us a common origin story that we all see ourselves connected um, and that we are related. And there's a scientific reason for this relationship. And so to the degree that the telling of the big history story it leads people to think they have something in common with each other, um, with all other Homo sapiens, that they have something in common with all life forms, that that other life for- we are related to other life forms, that we should be concerned about not just wars against other humans, but the extinction of other species, and we that we need to care for. Um, uh, other species, we, it, they, they matter to us. Uh, the the, uh, the Jill Levine, who's an Old Testament scholar, uh, it gives us a discussion about the the the, the Genesis story and the and the term Adam. And she says, "Okay, you've got God creating the first person, Adam." Uh, and uh, but the, but it, it, that term in Hebrew meant kind of red earth that, that God creates uh, humans out of the earth. So she says a, a better, a, a good translation for Adam would be earthling, made out of the stuff of the earth. And so life is a, life are, is, is, is a biological form of, 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 of being an earthling. So that we then have a deep connection with the earth. Um, well, this is, of course, the, the, the modern biologists say that we, we didn't go directly from mud to humans. Uh, it took a very long time to, to, uh, to have chemicals that are common on the surface of the earth come together and then lead to evolution that took nearly 4 billion years to lead to us. But in, in one sense, that biblical story is true in the sense that we are earthlings. And, and so if, if you feel that, if you see that connection and, and you, have, uh, you have emerged or evolved from the earth, then you have the environmental movement, the idea uh, that earth becomes uh, our common homeland uh, and that the, the holy land it isn't just for a particular ethnic group, for a particular uh, geographic territory, but it's for all earthlings uh, living on the earth, and that earth is the holy land. So you have a kind of a, a sacredness about the earth. In any case, this is a very long-winded way of saying <laughs> That, that the effort has been, well, the sciences are telling one story. There's a story which comes out of at least some of the religious traditions, and that they are both concerned with how can we tell stories to each other uh, or to give, provide evidence to each other to form closer relationships that are sustainable uh, or in, in the long run. Yeah, that was a very fascinating answer. As you were talking about the different cells in our body, it made me think of the old uh, political science, political theory idea of the body politic, like how societies were compared to the human body. And it's kind of like an example of what we were talking about earlier, about like older ideas and contemporary ideas being in dialogue with one another. No, the, I mean, for, for me, I, I'm fascinated by the 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 history of, of, of thinking about the relationship between science and, and politics. Um, it, uh, our nation's founding period was more influenced by the Newtonian view. They, they had been very interested in uh, on, on, in one sense, sort of the mechanical notion of relationships uh, that the, the ores that they had, the, the mechanical images of the solar system that, that are still on display you, uh, in, the, in the library. When you go in the front door of the University of Pennsylvania, they have one of these. It's, it's really wonderful, but we've all seen them. Uh, and and the, the solar system is made of a series of gears, uh, and then you can wind it up and have a spring move the planets around the sun uh, and the image of nature was that 
we were all machines, that the universe was a machine, the human body is the human uh, machine, um, and uh, that the, the, the founders in Articles 1, 2, and 3 of our Constitution are really talking about the gears of government rather than the branches of government. They're defining the, the properties of each gear, and then how do they interact? How do they move together to produce the outcomes that, that we want? We want them to produce uh, justice and, and domestic tranquility and the common defense and the general welfare. How are these gears going to do that? What moves them? And so the, 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 the Federalist Papers talked about the springs of government. Uh, and for them, that's avarice, ambition, and the love of fame, that that's what is going to move those gears together. Uh, and that if the system is created properly, it's going to lead to outcomes which benefit uh, the, the nation altogether. I, 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 but then this, the sense was, well, that's not how nature really works. I mean, cells are not little gears, um, and we don't have springs. So that mechanistic view fell out of favor, and we, and we moved towards a more biological notion of the relationship between science and, and politics. And, and yeah, the term body politic. Which is an old firm, uh, old term. It, it, it used to be a religious term, right? I mean, we've got a town called Corpus Christi, the body of Christ, uh, and and that's a, a a kind of a Christian New Testament notion that you know Saint Paul says we we all have our strengths and weaknesses, just like there's hands and feet and eyes and brains and so on, and, and they, they don't all do the same thing. So people are part of the body of the church, and they all do different things and contribute in their own ways. But uh, putting that religious notion aside uh, you you have the the more biological uh, influence on on politics darwin is the most famous so one for for reminding us that it's about you know there's a lot to say in in, in biology um <clears throat> Uh, but but that's that's more the 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 analogy uh, that we use, and uh, and of course we have the, the notion that uh, that that uh, political cultures develop organically, um, not according to some abstract ideas, uh, but that they emerge in sort of living ways, uh, and, uh, and, and 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 so that's yeah. So and that the that the universe has emerged um, in in that sense, uh, not according to some abstract plan, um, but uh, but has has grown, and, uh, and 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 as a result, we feel very connected to it. Uh, we're we're, um, we're we're part of that. Um, so yeah, yeah. So the, the term body politic, I think, is is a fascinating one. Yeah, this has been a very fascinating uh, interview. Do you have any uh, final thoughts uh, about the book? Well yeah, I uh, first of all, thank you. It's, it's it's a pleasure to talk about these things, uh, and, um, uh, and and this is an on. I, I guess the sense is this is not the last word on it. The, the old religious uh, folks used to talk about being pilgrims. Well, that's that's the better analogy. You're, you're, you, you enjoy walking on a path with others as you consider these questions. We haven't settled them. Uh, you know, we haven't answered the question of the relationship between science and religion or about how to form a new axial age. Um, it's, it's almost all left uh, un, undetermined. Um, but we enjoy that conversation and we, we, we take pleasure in, um, in, in conversing uh, about that. Uh, and Insofar as that goes, I think this, the scientific conferences that exist where people from different nations, and they might be nations we're at war with, get Russian scientists on, in, and on the space station if we can, uh, cooperate with the Chinese. So if you can have this, this common enterprise of, of enjoying the, the, the search for increasing the island of, of knowledge. Uh, that, I think, is also 
maybe the best of the religious tradition, not to def- not to stake out our claims on exactly who God is or what God is. I mean, how do we know? Uh, but just to experience presence, uh, each other's presence, that there's a certain sacredness in just being in each other's presence. That's, I think, the best of the religious tradition and the best of what scientific conferences uh, are about, um, and uh, that each of them uh, point us in the direction of uh, developing uh, the, the symbols, the ideas, the practices that can lead to more complex, sustainable forms of, of relationship um, in what is currently a very broken world. And uh, we usually like to end our interviews by asking our guests, uh, what are you working on now? And of course, as you said, there's, this is an ongoing project. Well, it, it is. I mean, first of all, I, 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 was, I, I was really appreciated the, the many people who were willing to cooperate in our book. You know, I'm not always a fan of postmodernism, but the idea of the social construction of knowledge has its place. The conversation among people from different religious traditions or scientific traditions as they in good faith exchange ideas with each other is is, is a real pleasure. Um, there's also value, I think, in individual pursuits. Uh, sometimes academics uh, overemphasizes the role of the, the individual. I mean, as graduate students, we're given our own little carol in the library and we we live sort of each in our, in our own minds. And it's not the social construction of knowledge it's a very personal uh, construction of, of knowledge. But having said that, there's a place for that too, I, I, I think. And so um, what I'm working on now, what I'm thinking of is, is rather than an edited book on this, to have a, an individually produced uh, a book uh, really on similar topics, uh, but um, uh, trying to... Uh, for example, I, I'm interested in not just the, the different religions and science and, and religion, but uh, you know the, the the big politics, the big history of art, uh, of music, um, of uh, of other aspects uh, of, of of our. Um, social life and political life, um, and that they all have very deep pasts. I mean, if you're talking about art, you're talking about color and light, you're talking about that portion of the electromagnetic spectrum that we're able to, to, to see. Or In any case, how, how can we have big histories uh, of so, many, so much else of what defines what matters uh, to us? I love listening to music. Why do I love listening to music? Where does that come from? Uh, there, and I think there's very deep reasons uh, that, that go back a long, long ways uh, to answer that question. So anyway, uh, that's what I'm sort of trying to get underway with these days. Well, when you uh, finish some of those projects, maybe we can have you back on the podcast. <laughs> I would I would enjoy it as much as I enjoyed this. So thank you very much. Uh, Lowell Gustafson, uh, thank you for joining us on the New Books Network. Thank you, Stephen. Thank you for listening to this episode of the New Books Network. I am your host, Stephen Sakevich. Until next time.